Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a military history podcast for non-military listeners about battles and conflicts that change the course of history. I'm your host, Chip Wagar, and today we're going to talk about a battle that most people have heard about, the Battle of Waterloo. Before we discuss Waterloo, though, I'd like to remind all our listeners that we do have a website, www.killingtimepodcast.com, and to invite all of you once again to visit us there and join our mailing list comment on our podcast, let us know what you like, what you don't like, and maybe even learn a little bit more about these battles that we're featuring in this podcast series. So come and join us. We'd love to have you join our number. And now about the Battle of Waterloo. The Battle of Waterloo is actually a series of battles, four battles that were fought between June 15th and June 19th of 1815. Of course, the Battle of Waterloo was Napoleon's last battle and ended a 16-year reign since he became First Consul of France in 1798. I've always had a few questions about the Battle of Waterloo, one of them being the counterfactual question of what would have happened Had Napoleon won the Battle of Waterloo, would it have made any difference in history? I think it would have, and uh, we'll explore that at the end of this podcast. Another question I've had in my mind is, why is it that the Battle of Waterloo has become so famous, so iconic, if you will, when there were other battles, particularly the Battle of Leipzig in 1813, that really had doomed the French Empire and Napoleon in the first place? And yet most people have never heard of Leipzig. Waterloo, on the other hand, is so famous that there's even an expression uh, that someone has met their Waterloo, meaning someone who's enjoyed great success has suffered a terrible, devastating defeat that has undone everything. In any event, let's talk a little bit about the context in which Waterloo takes place first and foremost. And here we have to talk about a little bit about the so-called Hundred Days. Napoleon had been exiled to the island of Elba, just off the coast of Italy, after his abdication in 1814. Now, that abdication had occurred after the Allies had entered Paris, and Napoleon's marshals basically had demanded his abdication, and he uh, eventually gave in and accepted final and ultimate defeat and in due course was taken and put on the island of Elba, not very far off the French or Italian coast, within easy distance actually, too easy a distance. Some of the Allies had had misgivings about placing him there as a, essentially as a prisoner so close to the mainland of Europe and had expressed their misgivings, but that's where he ended up. 
After about nine months on Elba, Napoleon decided that the time was ripe for him to attempt an encore, if you will, to see if he could regain the throne of France and live out the rest of his life as emperor of France, even if it didn't mean having a huge dominating position in Europe. So, on the 26th of February, after careful planning, Napoleon escaped from the island of Elba aboard a ship and headed for France. On the 1st of March, Napoleon and his soldiers landed at a little tiny fishing village called Golf Juan, which is today essentially part of Cannes. He expected to be confronted um, by the king and his royal army, and within a few days, the Royal 5th Infantry Regiment appeared, but almost immediately defected to Napoleon. On the 6th of March, the Royal 6th Infantry Regiment similarly defected to Napoleon. Now, this caused real alarm in Paris. The king summoned one of Napoleon's former marshals, who was still a marshal of France, Michel Ney, and asked him if he could capture Napoleon and put an end to this incursion. And Ney promised that he would. The king actually questioned him and said, You know, I know you loved this man once, but Ney replied that those days were gone and that he would go down and capture Napoleon and bring him back to the king in an iron cage, were his famous words. And he set off for the south with an army of about 6,000 men. On the 14th of March, Marshal Ney confronted Napoleon. Napoleon famously strode out in front of his now 2,500-man force and sort of bared his breast and said to the soldiers directly that if they wanted to kill their emperor, they should do so right now. This dramatic confrontation eventually and quickly resulted in acclamation by the soldiers and Marshal Ney himself impetuously, one might say even recklessly, decided to throw in with the emperor himself. So now the force had grown, and on the 19th of March, the garrison of Paris defected to Napoleon as well, and Louis XVIII, the king, fled Paris for the north and for the protection of the British. On the 20th of March, Napoleon entered Paris and proclaimed the empire was back. most famous national anthems in the world, and I have to say, uh, second to my own, my favorite, uh, La Marseillaise, uh, a revolutionary anthem that was composed at the outbreak of the French Revolution, and which during the Napoleonic period 
became the national anthem of France and remains the national anthem of France to this very day. Very familiar tune. I hope you liked it. So now let me take you to Vienna, where the Congress of Vienna was meeting, which included the most of the crowned heads of Europe, their ministers and diplomats and their military chiefs. And I'm going to read to you actually a little excerpt from the book Vienna 1814 uh, by David King, which is about how the conquerors of Napoleon made love, war, and peace at the Congress of Vienna, a fascinating book and one I would really commend to anyone who's interested in European history. King describes uh, in his book how the news came to Vienna and what an impression it made. And I'm going to quote now. On Tuesday, March 7th, after three in the morning, Metternich climbed the marble steps to his private rooms on the third floor of the chancery, where he crawled into bed for a well-deserved sleep. Another lengthy meeting of the Committee of Five had finally ended, and he was exhausted. Quote, I had forbidden my valet to disturb my rest, he said. Only a few hours later, his valet entered the chamber with a dispatch marked Urgent. Metternich took the envelope, glanced at the faraway sender, and then promptly set it on his nightstand. He then tried to go back to sleep, but as he put it, quote, Sleep once disturbed would not return. About half past seven he gave up his tossing and turning and opened the dispatch. It was a letter he would never forget. The commissioner on Elba, Neil Campbell, reported that Napoleon was nowhere to be found and wondered if anyone had seen him. The Austrian foreign minister sprang out of bed, threw on his clothes, and raced across uh, the courtyard of the Hofburg to inform Emperor Francis. By eight in the morning, they were in deep discussion. As Metternich described the historic morning, he then had a meeting with the Tsar over in the Amalia wing of the palace at 8.15, and then hurried across the inner court to meet with the King of Prussia. By nine that morning, he was back at the Chancery for a meeting with Austrian Field Marshal Prince Schwarzenberg. Quote, it was in less than an hour that war was declared, Metternich boasted later. On March 13th, a few days later, the Congress of Vienna declared Napoleon an outlaw at about the time that he had reached Lyon in France before he even entered Paris. On the 25th of March, the great powers agreed to an alliance against Napoleon. This included the United Kingdom, Prussia, Austria, and Russia, as well as some of the more minor states, most significantly in this case, the Kingdom of the Netherlands. Each of the great powers agreed to place 150,000 men in arms to defeat and capture Napoleon, and agreed that the target date would be July 1st to begin an invasion of France by the Allies. Now, this is in late March, so you can see that it is going to take several months for these great powers to assemble and move their armies across Europe to the borders of France, which is going to be a problem for the Allies because some of them, like Prussia in particular, who are much closer to France, were exposed much more quickly. And that is going to eventually result in Napoleon's decision to invade Belgium and attack the English and the Prussians, two of his great enemies, because they were already there and they were within easy reach of Paris, where he formed up his army in the 
coming months. But it, it is important to note that even had Napoleon been victorious at Waterloo, he would have had to face another Prussian army that was forming uh, near Belgium on the Rhine, a Russian army that was estimated to be at about 168,000 troops by the time of Waterloo, and another Austrian army of about a quarter of a million men that was forming up on the south end of the Rhine, Switzerland, and Italy. And all of them would have invaded together and attacked Napoleon and France, even after Waterloo. We never get to that point, of course, because Waterloo makes the invasion of the other great powers a moot point. But we'll discuss at the end of the podcast how the counterfactual situation is affected by that fact. In any event, Napoleon is going to put together an army in the intervening months of about 179,000 men. However, he's not going to be able to bring all of those uh, troops with him to uh, Belgium. He's going to need to guard his frontiers in Spain, uh, in Italy, Switzerland, along the Rhines. But he strips it down uh, fair, pretty bare and uh, gathers most of his army, which is going to be somewhere above 100,000 men, and begins to move them toward the border, the Sambre River, which forms the border between France and modern-day Belgium. And a quick word about Belgium. I'm going to use that word. Uh, In 1815, Belgium didn't exist and never had existed and wouldn't exist for another 15 years. Uh, It had formerly been the Austrian Netherlands, it had been the Spanish Netherlands, and it was now part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, ruled by the Dutch from Amsterdam and The Hague. But we'll call it Belgium. The army that he brings with him is divided uh, up into five army corps uh, of infantry and another four cavalry reserve corps and finally the French Imperial Guard. Although estimates vary, it is thought that Napoleon's entire army that was brought to the north, the Army of the North, or Armée du Nord, uh, numbered around 122,652 men, and about 358 pieces of ordnance, which mainly is cannon. Wellington and the Anglo-Dutch-German forces under his command had about 92,300 men, and the Prussians under Marshal Blucher had another 130,000. So, as you'll see, the French had about as many men as Blucher did under his command, and if Wellington and Blucher put their armies together, they would substantially outnumber Napoleon. side of these podcasts, 
that is from Holst, the the uh, famous uh, series of pieces he wrote, that one, Mars, the Bringer of War. I'm going to talk about Wellington's command as a coalition, an Anglo-Dutch coalition. In truth, about half of Wellington's army was British, about a quarter was Dutch, and another quarter of it was uh, German from about three German states. Hanover, which was actually ruled by the king of Great Britain, who was also the king of Hanover, Brunswick, and Nassau. So he is commanding a force in which there are three different languages spoken, and he has to deal with native commanders, the Duke of Brunswick, the Prince of Orange, who's the heir to the Dutch throne, are all under his command. Napoleon and Blucher, on the other hand, have a fairly homogeneous force, uh, mainly French, almost entirely French under Napoleon, and almost entirely Prussian under Blucher. Now, in the days between Napoleon's entry into Paris and June 15th, when he has pretty much arrived at the border of Belgium, Napoleon really manages to rally France around him once again. The, The old magic is at work, and the French are in the emotional state in which they probably were like in 1792, right after the revolution when they were facing invasion from all sides. And they were certainly facing invasion from all sides here as well. But Napoleon was extremely popular and had captured the imagination of the French. And there was a possibility, certainly, that given more time, he might have been able to raise a much larger army to face the invasion that was certainly coming, even if he dispatched the alliance in the north, in Belgium. In any event, he didn't have time. He knew that the massive forces of Austria, Russia, and half the Prussian army were forming up to invade, and he needed to strike quickly. His strategy was simple. Rather than wait to be invaded and try to fend off the various armies as they converged on him and encircled him and probably destroyed him, he decided to take the offensive and move north at the nearest armies that he could reach. So it was very important to his plan to attack first while the Anglo-Dutch and Prussian armies were still isolated from these other major armies forming up in the east, and furthermore to separate the Prussians from the British so that he could attack each of them and defeat each of them separately. The odds of success, of course, would be much higher if he could have a battle in which he didn't have to face both of them at the same time. So it was a divide-and-conquer strategy, and it was a good one and probably the best one that was available to Napoleon at the time. Now, in furtherance of this strategy, Napoleon was able to fool the Duke of Wellington, at least for a little while, into believing that he was going to approach and take the capital of modern-day Belgium, Brussels, uh, by the most direct route between Paris and Brussels, which went through the city of Mons. And he made the Duke think that that is the invasion route that he was going to take. And so the Anglo-Dutch forces were arrayed fairly far to the west near the English Channel and the North Sea, and at some distance from the Prussians who were gathering their forces around the city of Ligny. 
L-I-G-N-Y, Ligny. In between the two was a very small village called Quatre Bras, or Four Arms in French. And this little village was very important because it had an east-west road going through it and a north-south road. The north-south road connected Charlois on the border, part of Belgium, but just over the, the River Sambre. It connected Charlois with Brussels, going north and south. And then the road went east and west, which was a great highway to connect the Anglo-Dutch forces to the west with the Prussian forces in the east. On June the 15th, Quatrebras was basically undefended, and Napoleon was going to walk into this little village and take this strategic spot, which would give him the ability to go north, south, and east, and west very quickly, and really impede and impair the ability of the English, the Anglo-Dutch forces and the Prussians to combine. So this little hamlet became an important spot. Nonetheless, Napoleon's false intelligence had the desired effect and kept the Duke of Wellington guessing. One of the iconic scenes of the Battle of Waterloo is the ball that was given by the Duke and Duchess of Richmond in Brussels on the evening of the 15th of June. Napoleon crossed the Somme on the morning of the 15th of June, and Prussian outposts and pickets noticed this movement and reported it back to Marshal Blucher and his staff very quickly. Blucher, in the afternoon, sent a courier flying to the west to find Wellington and his staff and inform him of the fact that the French were moving from Charlois north. They found him at the ball of the Duchess of Richmond and conveyed to him that evening Blucher's belief that the French were moving north from Charlois and that the Prussians would concentrate at Ligny to block his movement north and to give battle. The Duke was not convinced yet and, as a precaution, arrayed his forces still to the west of Quatre Bras, but little unbeknownst to him, his chief of staff, a man with a very French name, Constant Rebec, quietly overruled the Duke and moved two Anglo-British brigades to Quatre Bras to dig in there and prevent a huge gap from being exploited uh, by Napoleon. Wellington later realized his error and was thankful for the fact that his chief of staff had been clever enough to move these forces into Quatre Bras, because that turns out to be the site of one of the major battles that occurs the following day on June 16th. And it is unfortunate for Napoleon, because this is the first of several things that will go wrong for him during the course of the next few days. Had he been able to lure Wellington a little bit longer to the west and isolated Blucher a little bit more, he might have absolutely destroyed the Prussian army at the Battle of Ligny, which follows uh, again on the 16th. Instead, what will happen is that he has to divide his army, and he does so. He sends Marshal Ney north, almost due north, from Charlois, to attack Quatre Bras and take it from the Anglo-Dutch forces that are there. And there's only about 8,000 of them there. Ney actually has about 20,000 men under his command uh, as he heads north and is given command of the 1st and 2nd Infantry Corps, the 3rd Cavalry Corps, and the Imperial Guard Light Cavalry Division. So that's a formidable force that he heads north with. And again, 
On the 15th of June, there are only 8,000 Allied troops rushing into Quatre Bras to dig in and hang on. The remainder of the French army under Napoleon and his uh, chief of staff, uh, Marshal Soult, and his other main commander, the commander of the right wing of the army, Marshal Emmanuel Grouchy, head off to the northeast in the direction of Ligny to deal with the Prussians. Now that is going to be a somewhat uneven battle because Napoleon is going to meet the Prussians with about 68,000 French troops, and the Prussians are going to have about 84,000 troops. Uh, So the numerical uh, superiority lies with the Prussians, and not by a little bit. But nonetheless, the French are well-led, hardened veterans, and they're going to confront the Prussians on the 16th of July. In the late afternoon of the 15th, Marshal Ney approaches Quatre Bras and receives some rather stiff artillery fire, and he's able to observe that there are some dug-in troops there around the crossroads and around a raid around uh, the village. And for reasons that only he will ever know, he stops dead at that point and decides not to risk a vigorous attack that evening, which undoubtedly would have brushed aside this rather meager force that was defending Cantabra, and he will never have a better chance of it than he did on the evening of the 15th. This is a bit unusual for this particular commander. Marshal Ney is known in history and was known to Napoleon to be, if anything, overly aggressive and impetuous and reckless and an extremely personally brave himself. He uncharacteristically fumbles the ball at this point and decides to camp for the night just south of Catabra and carry out his attacks in the morning. This is a golden opportunity because the forces that are there are able to prepare better for the attack and dig in and other Anglo-Dutch forces which were located at some distance to the north and the east have time to get to the battlefield to reinforce the troops at Catabra, and it will become a completely different situation the following day. As a matter of fact, both the Battle of Waterloo and these twin battles that are going to take place on the 16th start quite late in the day. The Battle of Catabra begins at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. By then, the British have several reinforcing columns that have almost arrived. It is possible that had Ney begun to attack much earlier in the day, at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, he might have driven these forces out of Quatre Bras as well, but he didn't. At 2 o'clock, Ney begins his attack with a rather large cannonade and begins pushing infantry forward to take uh, the village and the crossroads. Fighting continues for about an hour when an entire British division under uh, Thomas Picton arrives, and Picton will have a major role in the following day, two days later at Waterloo. And within a short time, some Dutch forces under Baron von Merlin, the 3rd Light Cavalry Brigade, arrives, intensifying the fighting. Uh, The French get some reinforcements under Prince Jerome Bonaparte, and at 5 o'clock, another British division arrives. 
by then, Wellington had, himself had personally uh, come to the field, and with the arrival of this last British division, the numerical superiority that Ney had enjoyed earlier in the day has now disappeared. It's actually the Anglo-Dutch forces that have more men and more uh, supplies than the, F- the French. Of course, in the heat of battle, neither side is entirely sure of exactly uh, how many men the other side has, and the British and the Dutch had been hanging on for dear life for most of the day, so the battle continues on into the evening fiercely. One of the major disappointments of this battle for Napoleon involves the French First Corps under Marshal Durlan. Marshal Durlan was technically assigned to uh, Ney's command and was over on his far right. The distances between these locations, by the way, Ligny and Quatrebras, is not far. They can hear each other's cannon, and from one town to the other is about a three-hour walk today, um, a th- three-hour march for an army, or no more than that. And Derlon is located on Ney's right wing and has drifted over further and further to the east where he hears the booming cannon uh, of Napoleon. And he is going to get a message from Napoleon to hurry over to the Battle of Ligny to help him uh, encircle and defeat Blucher, which I'll discuss more in a minute. However, Ney is also getting a note from Napoleon at about four o'clock insisting that he finish up with Quatrebras as quickly as he could, and for Ney to move to the north and east to help block the retreat of the Prussians and to encircle them. So at about five o'clock, Ney discovers that Derlon had gone almost all the way over to Ligny and sends a message to come back immediately because of the rather hot fight that he's in at Quatrebras and needing his help to defeat the Anglo-Dutch forces. Derlon does immediately turn around, much to Napoleon's amazement and horror. Napoleon could actually see his advanced columns in the distance uh, and is stunned when he turns around and marches away. He arrives uh, not until about nine o'clock in the evening, but by then uh, the, the British and the Dutch have begun to withdraw from the battlefield. Wellington discovers that Blucher has been defeated at Ligny, and he cannot stay in this exposed position with Napoleon possibly now moving to the west and encircling and crushing his army. He must retreat and sort of stay level, if you will, uh, with Blucher. So Wellington, as the evening wears on, begins to detach and fall back to the village of Genappe, and then further back to an area of bluffs that straddle the road to Brussels called Mont-Saint-Jean. Mont-Saint-Jean is today um, right on the outskirts of the Belgian city of Waterloo. In fact, the battle that we're going to talk about that has the famous name did not actually take place in Waterloo, but just to the south of the city. The reason it's called the Battle of Waterloo is because Wellington wrote a very famous dispatch to the Secretary of War in London from Waterloo. And at the top of his dispatch is the name of the location, as it was the custom to do in those days, 
And so the battle became known as the Battle of Waterloo. And I'm going to call it the battlefield Waterloo. But in truth, uh, to be technically accurate, this is a little village to the south of Waterloo known as Mont Saint-Jean, Mount Saint-John. Now, what had been happening to the east? Well, a raucous battle uh, had been fought between Napoleon and Grouchy on the one side and Blucher and his corps commanders on the other. Uh, that had raged from about 2 o'clock in the afternoon till about 6 o'clock. The fighting was tremendous with an ebbing and flowing of the battle uh, both ways. Marshal Blucher, 72 years old, had personally led a couple of attacks uh, during the day, but the second one, late in the day, was to prove almost a disaster because his horse was shot out from under him and fell in such a way that the horse fell on top of Marshal Blucher and pinned him to the ground so well that he couldn't get out from under the horse. He actually was rescued by another officer who happened to see him uh, lying on the ground under the horse and was able to extricate him from his position. But for a while, uh, Blucher was actually missing in action, and the Prussian commanders decided after a particularly ferocious French offensive to pull back and regroup around what turned out to be around the town of Wavre, W-A-V-R-E, Wavre, some distance to the north and east of Ligny. Now, had Derlon kept going, he might have blocked this retreat and allowed Napoleon to finish off the Prussians under Blucher. As it was, the Prussians were defeated, but not decisively, and their army was largely intact and withdrew from the field in fairly good order and escaped the kind of obliteration or annihilation that would have really isolated the Duke of Wellington and allowed Napoleon to have his way with him. Now, Napoleon decided at this point to detach his right wing under Marshal Grouchy with about 30,000 French soldiers and about 80 cannon to pursue what he thinks is a demoralized, um, weak uh, Prussian army that's retreating uh, away from him as quickly as they can go. Napoleon's instructions to Grucci are to pursue the Prussians and to harass them and keep them retreating and away from Wellington and the Anglo-Dutch forces that he now intends to round on and defeat more decisively than he did the Prussians. And indeed, Napoleon leaves the field at Ligny and rides off to meet with Ney at Quatre Bras. When he arrives the evening of the 16th, uh, the battle is over and um, his troops begin to reform with Ney's troops at Quatre Bras and resume their march north to their fatal encounter at Waterloo. Grouchy does as he's told and continues following the Prussians, although he unfortunately loses contact with the Prussians. Uh, And this turns out to be another one of those unfortunate circumstances which undermines Napoleon and uh, his uh, fate at Waterloo. The Prussians do indeed retreat to the east, which is a logical retreating route for them toward the Rhine, toward Germany, 
towards safety. And Grouchy pursues them to the town of Turin, which is where dusk settles and Blucher pulls a fast one. He turns to his left and begins marching almost due north, but northwest toward the town of Wavre. And he marches not through the entire night, but marches through much of the night until midnight or so, about a three-hour march, uh, until he allows his army to finally rest and refit at Wavre. Grouchy, in the meantime, not realizing that Blucher has marched on through the night, camps his forces at a town near Turin called Jamblou. So a rather large gap opens up between the the French under Grouchy and Blucher's Prussians, who are now located in Wavre, several hours' march away. Wavre, on the other hand, is quite near Mont-Saint-Jean. As a matter of fact, it's only about... 10 miles away. Had the Prussians kept marching to the east, they would have gotten farther and farther away from Wellington. And this is perhaps one of the understated, brilliant moves on the part of Blucher. The sort of nighttime march to Wavre keeps his forces very close to Wellington's. And as a matter of fact, Blucher and Wellington correspond with each other during the night. At two o'clock in the morning on the day of the Battle of Waterloo, the 18th, Wellington rises, probably unable to sleep, anxious, and sends a note off by rider to Blucher. And in the note, Wellington tells Blucher that he will give Napoleon battle at Mont-Saint-Jean if Blucher can support him with at least one or two corps from Blucher's army. This sets off a rather intense discussion between Blucher and his chief of staff, Auguste Niedhart Neisenau, one of the towering figures of Prussian and German uh, military history because he is one of the great reformers in the Prussian army after the defeat of Prussians at Jena by Napoleon. In any event, Neisenau is very cautious and is fearful that Wellington won't stand and will instead retreat to the west and to the coast. And if the Prussians march over to where Wellington is located and he's not there and they're left in the lurch, Napoleon's going to be able to attack and destroy them and prevent them from retreating uh, to Germany. Blucher, the crusty old commander, a very uh, aggressive general, probably someone similar to George Patton of the American army in World War II. The soldiers called him Marshal Forwards for forward, Marshal Forward for his aggressive nature. He convinces Neisenau. No, not only am I going to send one or two corps, I'm going to send three of my four corps over to help Wellington, and I'm personally going to go with them. And he leaves one corps as a rear guard under General von Thielmann uh, in Wavre to sort of block the back door and keep Grouchy occupied while the main force of the Prussians move over to Waterloo. So at 6 o'clock in the morning, Blucher's reply arrives at Wellington's headquarters, that he will send support. And the Duke of Wellington then begins to make his field dispositions uh, and preparations for the coming battle. About the same time, Grouchy reports to Napoleon that the Prussians are in Wavre and that he's going to advance on them immediately. Uh, Napoleon confirms this order to Grouchy, Uh, to harass the Prussians and stop them from reforming. 
and these orders go out at about 6 o'clock in the morning, and Grouchy's corps, uh, the right wing of the French army, basically, begins to move out of Jean Bleu at about 8 o'clock in the morning, up the road to Vavre. At 10 o'clock, Grouchy sends another message to Napoleon that three Prussian corps from Blucher's army had decamped from Vavre, which was correct, but Grouchy mistakenly thought that they had gone uh, up the road toward Brussels. But this was, of course, not where they were going. They were on their way due west to join Wellington uh, at Mont-Saint-Jean. Faulty intelligence and poor communications are going to kill Napoleon's chances at Waterloo. And this is the beginning of the catastrophe which is occurring on the morning of the battle between Napoleon and Grouchy, because Grouchy is actually going to put himself completely out of the fight and is going to get engaged in a separate parallel battle some two or three hours to the east of Napoleon, while Napoleon has desperate need of him at Waterloo, and he never arrives. Grouchy is somewhat uh, unfairly criticized by many military historians with respect to his conduct at Waterloo. Alan Schoem, in his book on Napoleon, uh, in the chapter on the Battle of Waterloo, calls Grouchy cowardly, for example. And there are other similar harsh epithets that are used with respect to this very aristocratic general. And probably this is as good a time as any to talk a little bit about Marshal Grouchy, because he is, along with Ney, one of the major reasons for the defeat at Waterloo. Um, But while Ney's mistakes are the result of thoughtless incompetence for the most part, Grouchy's contribution to the fatal undoing of Napoleon is due to his conscientiousness and his following orders that Napoleon himself has issued or confirmed to him. He does exactly what Napoleon ordered him to do. Unfortunately, he does not realize that Napoleon and Soult back on the battlefield at Waterloo, when they realize what is happening, try to get him to come to their aid, but it just takes too long, and his course is already set by the time orders reach him. When orders reach him from Napoleon to summoning him to the battlefield at Waterloo, he immediately gathers his forces and starts to do so, but by then it's too late. Grouchy, uh, is a marquis. He was born into an aristocratic family. He had a long and distinguished career in the French army. He had Republican sympathies despite his aristocratic background, um, joined the Revolutionary Army, was opposed initially to the coup d'etat by Napoleon, but quickly after that um, resumed his military posts under Napoleon and had a string of almost unbroken successes at virtually every battle that he participated in, and was one of Napoleon's most trusted subordinates. It is really no wonder uh, that he entrusted one whole wing of his army to this man, who rallied to his cause uh, when he came back to France from Elba. And so, in any event, Grouchy's contribution is more tragic than it is a matter of cowardice or incompetence on his part. In any event, back to the field at Waterloo, the weather that day uh, was rainy during the night, and when dawn came up, it was gray, misty, and foggy. The ground was sodden, and Napoleon's forces coming up from the south were slowed by mud 
And for these reasons, Napoleon kept postponing the start of this battle, unaware that by doing so, he was also contributing to his own undoing because the Prussians were on the march already. And I can't emphasize how close these destinations and distances are. Wavre was only three and a half, three, three and a half hours on foot from Mont-Saint-Jean. And the Prussians arrive, the very, the vanguard of Bulow's fourth corps arrives on the battlefield only an hour after the battle starts. It's not like um, many movies portray or people believe that, you know, Blucher arrived at the last instant and helped Wellington snatch defeat from victory. The truth was the Prussians and Blucher were arriving virtually continuously during the afternoon, beginning at around one o'clock. And they simply got more and more numerous and more and more of a factor in the battle uh, as the day wore on. As a matter of fact, Grouchy and his generals hear the guns open up from Napoleon's massive grand battery shortly after noon. And there is a brief discussion about whether they should break off their um, attack on Wavre and march to the sound of the guns. But Grouchy eventually decides to, no, follow the orders that he was given by Napoleon. And thinking that he was engaging and would easily defeat the Prussians in Wavre, that would be sufficient to keep them from joining Wellington at Waterloo. So he had a good uh, idea of what to do. There was reasoning behind his moves, and they were consistent with the orders that he was given by Napoleon. So I find his conduct fairly blameless at Waterloo, although the absence of his army, which is about a third of the French army, is going to cost Napoleon the battle, uh, for sure. Now, on the battlefield itself, the French draw up in a long line, if you can imagine it, and as we do in this podcast, I'm going to sort of describe to you the layout of the battlefield with the idea that most of you will not have a map in front of you. The French are drawn up from left to right with Ryle's corps uh, on the far left, uh, the Imperial Guard and Lobo's sixth uh, corps uh, to the rear, and Derlon's first corps to the to the right of Napoleon. Across the front, especially Derlon's first corps, is a massive gun line, and Napoleon artillery uh, really outnumbers Wellington at this point, and his army is uh, slightly larger than Wellington's when the battle begins, although this will start to change very quickly as the Prussians trickle in during the day. In any event, it's Napoleon who uh, begins the battle with a massive cannonade, and that gun line in front of Durland's first corps, as well as uh, other artillery, really open up and pound the center of the British line, which is located on top of a bluff with a road going right across their front. So the British are located on a sloping bluff topped by a road that goes across their front. They're, they have artillery also, but not very much and not of the heaviness that the French artillery was. And they are dug in there with reserve cavalry to the rear and the Dutch uh, forces are over to their extreme right, uh, sort of anchoring their their line. And their left flank is going to be where the Prussians start to fill in when they arrive. But as the battle starts, things look good for the French. The pounding that the British 
line takes from the French artillery during the day is is horrific and produces tremendous casualties as hour after hour of pounding goes on. But the first move made by Napoleon is to advance Durland's first uh, first corps uh, across the battles, battlefield and up the slopes to engage the British infantry at the top of, of the hill there. And, um, you know, to do that, of course, the artillery does have to stop, um, or they'll hit their own men. And Durland's men march across the field in fairly good order, and the fighting now starts to begin. And this is basically a head-on assault to literally overpower the the um, the British infantry. And as the minutes tick by and, you know, the fighting goes on, they begin to make uh, headway. Von Bulow's fourth corps, though, is seen for the first time now approaching from the east, and Napoleon dispatches General Lobau over to the right flank to basically face off against the advancing Prussians and keep them from attacking him in the flank or rear. As Durland's infantry appear uh, now at about 2, 2.30 in the afternoon to be about to carry the uh, British line on the hill, there occurs one of the iconic moments of the day, a counterattack by Picton's General Picton's infantry, which rushes up from reserve position and begins to engage uh, the French in bitter fighting at the top of the hill. There's also a tremendous battle going around on one of these two farmhouses that sort of anchor the battlefield on the left and the right. This one is Saint-Lahay, a stone farmhouse that is packed full of, in this case, the King's German Legion, a German contingent that stubbornly refuses to give up the farmhouse and is a real thorn in uh, Durland's side. And they, despite attempt after attempt and attack after attack, it remains an impediment to their uh, advance and they just can't really sweep them aside. Picton's um, counterattack does stop the French assault and here General Picton actually loses his life uh, in the counterattack and is, is shot down. But what really um, backs the um, the French off is a tremendous cavalry charge by Lord Uxbridge now, who rumbles out uh, with his cavalry from Pic- from the sort of dead center of the British line and begins to take Durland's corps in its left flank and rear. And the force of the charge is tremendous and it causes a temporary confusion and panic in the French who begin to retreat back down the hill and back into their uh, original position. This charge by Lord Uxbridge is one of those moments in the battle that many you know, paintings afterwards show the brilliant attack uh, the Scots Greys and other famous uh, British military units as they came thundering down the hill. Unfortunately for Lord Uxbridge and his cavalry, however, um, they really didn't hold anything in reserve, and as they approached the starting position from where Durlan began, there, there again is that massive gun line, and as soon as Durlan's men are um, out of the way, 
that artillery begins to open up with a tremendous blast of canister and grape shot that does tremendous damage to Uxbridge's forces. Uh, Napoleon also very uh, adroitly orders a counterattack uh, with his cavalry, Uxbridge's cavalry's milling around sort of between the the two forces, and the horses are blown, as they say, they're exhausted. And Napoleon's cuirassiers come sweeping down uh, and um, pretty much uh, cut uh, the cavalry to pieces at that point, and what remains uh, gallops off the field and up to protection and safety. But the charge does achieve its purpose, and, and that is blunting the French attack. The Battle of Waterloo becomes, at this point, is a matter of time because the Prussians are going to bring to the field an army uh, about as large as Wellington's and or Napoleon's. And together with Wellington's army, the Prussians uh, will eventually form a mass that's, that's going to tip the scales uh, against Napoleon. And Napoleon realizes this uh, is happening. So he is frantically now sending messages to Grouchy to to come and join him at the field, as the Prussians have, but these messages never reach Grouchy until about uh, 8 o'clock in the evening. So Lobot has to uh, make do with what he has to fend off the Prussians, and Napoleon's next move is being considered when Marshal Ney takes matters into his own hands. He decides to try to complete what... Durlan started and attacks with a force of about 1,600 cavalry straight up the hills again over the the road, the highway, and the idea was to smash through and uh, rout basically the British center where, where Picton's forces, what remains of them are. Now, this might not have seemed too bad an idea, except Ney does this without consulting with Napoleon and without coordinating the attack with any supporting infantry. In fact, Napoleon's artillery once again is pounding the British uh, line and, and doing so uh, fairly effectively. Ney does not even bother to stop the artillery fire, and Napoleon himself, uh, in the nick of time, gets word to the artillery to stop firing as Ney's massive cavalry charge begins to crest the hill on top of the bluffs. Unfortunately, uh, Wellington has seen this coming and has cleverly on the other side of the of the bluff, which couldn't be seen by the French, has formed the British into a continuous series of s- squares. This is the defense of infantry in Napoleonic period. Uh, from a very stout cavalry charge. And what happens here is the the infantry forms a hollow square and basically uses their bayonets and, when possible, musket fire to um, defend themselves against the horses. Horses uh, will not jump into a square like that or, or force their way through. Horses shy away from that. Uh, they will go kind of like Hannibal's uh, elephants at the uh, Battle of Zama in in Roman times. Elephants the same way. They they will go around the squares, but they won't go into them or over them. And so what happens is Nepal is is that Ney's cavalry, you know, comes flying over the hill, um, a massive force indeed, and a splendid sight. But the British are waiting for them, and they're formed perfectly into squares. 
and as Colonel Fraser, um, one of the uh, British officers uh, who survived the battle, said later, never did cavalry behave so nobly or was received by infantry so firmly. For the next better part of a half an hour, French cavalry, armed with sabers and lances and so forth, begin to attack these squares, taking very heavy casualties. Um, and the British are taking casualties too, but, the, but they're definitely getting the better of it. French cavalry now is uh, often milling about and doing what they can, but the bayonets, of these, these rifles, these brown besses and baker rifles are quite long. These barrels are as, almost as long as a spear um, pointed with a bayonet. It works well to keep horses at bay and or stab the riders that are up in the saddle. So Ney's cavalry charge ultimately fails to dislodge the British. He retreats. The French position was described by another British officer, um, again quoted in Alan Schoen's book, uh, like this. The horses of the first rank of cuirassars, in spite of all the efforts of their riders, came to a standstill, shaking and covered with foam, at about twenty yards' distance from our squares. Unable to renew the charge, but unwilling to retreat, they brandished their swords with loud cries of Vive l'Empereur, and allowed themselves to be mowed down by the hundreds rather than yield. So Ney eventually did call a retreat and fell back down uh, the slope. Ney, by the way, has four horses shot out from underneath him uh, during the day, but miraculously himself, uh, is never wounded. Uh, when they get down to the bottom of the slope, they renew the charge and come up the slope again, but this time basically at a walk. And once again, the British squares unleashed volley after volley into the cavalry until they retreated once more down the slopes. Napoleon is watching this in, in horror. Rather than stop, now Ney is joined by General Kellerman and his 3rd Cavalry Corps with Guillaume's uh, cuirassars to number about 9,000 cavalry. Can you imagine? 9,000 horses uh, to renew the attack uh, as Napoleon walk, looks on. I mean, this, basically his entire cavalry, uh, with the exception of the remaining ones with the Imperial Guard, has been now collected by Ney after two ineffective assaults, and begins another one. And it's described by a British captain, Silborn, as a moving mass, he says. And as it approached the Anglo-Allied position, undulating with the conformation of the ground, it resembled a sea in agitation, like waves following in quick succession. And the devoted British squares seemed lost in the tumultuous onset. Never... No, never did the French strike their adversaries with such murderous force. One of the uh, French uh, infantry generals remarked uh, during the battle. Uh, Wellington supposedly remarked, and this is attributed to him, hard pounding this. Let's see who will pound the longest. And once again, the British squares repulsed the French uh, cavalry. Thunderous, murderous work, uh, one soldier calling it. We're now at about 6 o'clock in the afternoon uh, when the f bedraggled French cavalry fall back again from, from the slopes, having failed again to dislodge uh, 
the British uh, from the top of the hills. Um, two French generals, Friand and Michel, uh, had been killed in the uh, attack. But by this time, the, the uh, French artillery and the carnage caused by, on British lines by these cavalry charges, uh, Wellington's center, which had numbered about 28,000 infantry at the beginning of the, of the battle, uh, was now down to just a few thousand uh, shaken infantry barely holding on. But by 6 o'clock, Blucher himself was on the battlefield and urging his uh, men on. They attack um, the farmhouse that guards the French right flank that was known as Plans Noir, and bitter fighting has broken out there. By 6 o'clock, though, uh, the French abandoned Plans Noir, and the Prussians are now firmly uh, advancing to the rear of Derlan and, and the flank of the uh, French army generally. Napoleon ordered a counterattack there, uh, and the farmhouse of Plansnois is briefly retaken again by the French, but once again the Prussians renew the attack and take it back. The Prussian advance was all the more ominous because if it succeeded, it could turn into a, an envelopment of the French army, cutting off their retreat back to Charlois and putting the French army in a in sort of a, a sandwich between the British and uh, in the in their front and the Prussians in their rear, and it could have led to the annihilation of the of the whole French army. So uh, Napoleon, of course, sees this and is desperately staving off the Prussian attacks that are becoming ever more insistent and ever more heavy on his right flank. He really, at this point, should have ordered a retreat um, because the situation was was totally hopeless without Grouchy coming to his rescue. Uh, and perhaps regrouped, you know, farther down the road to the rear uh, in Charlois. But he, he, he doesn't. He actually makes the situation beyond recall when he decides to commit the Imperial Guard in one last attempt to smash through the British line at the top of the hill and actually, on his horse, leads them out onto the field exhorting them on the imperial guard is never surrendered and the dramatic climactic end of the battle comes when the imperial guard actually um, meets british artillery and reinforced infantry on the british right the french left and is repulsed by a savage bombardment on from the british gun line and withering musket fire uh, that uh, cuts them down as they come up the slopes. The carnage is so great and so pitiful uh, that as the Imperial Guard stands there sort of in stunned disbelief, Lord Hill, one of the British generals, actually rides up to them on his horse with a white flag showing and tells them in French that um, they've done their duty and that they've done all that can be expected of them. Won't they surrender now? and save themselves from, from slaughter. Reputedly, one of the French uh, Imperial Guards shouts out, Merde! And in any event, they refuse, to, they refuse to do so, and they are literally cut down by the British at that point until there's just a few of them left that straggle off the battlefield. At that point, uh, we're now at, at, at essentially at about 8 o'clock in the evening when 
Wellington, after the repulsing of the Imperial Guard, orders a general attack all along the line. And when that happens, and the British begin advancing down the hill, the French infantry basically collapses. Napoleon leaves the field. He can't be seen or found. He doesn't tell Ney um, that he's leaving. And But the French um, eventually notice that the famous... Uh, hat is no longer in and amongst them and confusion and panic begins to set in as they uh, retreat in en masse to the south towards Charleroi. Grouchy in the meantime has fought his way into Wavre. Um, Van Thielman is doing a great job delaying him but uh, is giving ground slowly but surely. At about six o'clock a letter had arrived from Soult asking him to immediately come to the aid of Napoleon at, at Mont Saint-Jean, and Grouchy did so. He began to gather uh, his forces and strike out toward the west, arriving around the town of Le Mal at about 11 o'clock in the evening. The Prussians, again fighting a very game rearguard action under Fontilman, moved to block the French at Le Mal, and there's a there's a forest around it, and there's sporadic fighting uh, that occurs during the night, and it's anticipated, of course, by Grouchy that um, in the morning he'll renew the attack and and finish off on Thielman. And sure enough, at 9 o'clock in the morning, the forest around Lamal is cleared by Grouchy, and Grouchy is exultant in this, in this victory and is intent on pursuing von Thielman and rejoining Napoleon's army. And for about an hour and a half, he, he is in this extremely exultant, happy mood. The Prussians, meanwhile, at 10 o'clock, learn of Napoleon's defeat the previous day. And so they retreat, um, knowing that there's no point in taking further casualties or even delaying Grouchy anymore, because the great threat of Napoleon and the main French army is now retreating to the south. Grouchy, on the other hand, at this point is making plans toward moving to help envelop what he thinks is Wellington's retreating army. But at 10.30, news comes to Grouchy, and he is shocked to learn of Napoleon's uh, defeat. And as a very astute general that he is, he realizes his position now is exposed. To the west is the British-Prussian army that if he doesn't move quickly, is going to cut him off in moving to the south. So he gathers his uh, army together very quickly and uh, moves to the south and actually retreats eventually all the way to Paris, sort of helping Napoleon's main army retreat as sort of a rear guard. But that is the end of the campaign uh, for Napoleon and for the French. In the days that follow his return to Paris, Napoleon briefly does think about continuing the resistance, but uh, eventually concludes that he will not put France through bloodbath and more battles, and abdicates. He attempts to escape. Uh, he has plans to hopefully get aboard um, a ship and get to America, where he'll be beyond the reach of his enemies. Um, but uh, he doesn't uh, make it, basically surrenders to the British. Um, he gets cornered and is taken to England at that point, where he's held a prisoner aboard a British ship at Plymouth. Um, word gets out, by the way, that um, he's there, and the English people come as far away as Scotland, come down to see 
Napoleon, when he comes out to walk the deck and take the air, eventually is transferred to the Bellerophon and then brought to St. Helena where he spends the remaining years of his life. Uh, he dies in 1821, six years later, still a very young man, 51 years old. Could Napoleon have won the Battle of Waterloo? I think he could have. There are a number of what-ifs beginning on the 15th uh, of June that, if it had gone the other way, might have made all the difference in the world. The battle was a very close thing. I'm not the only one that thinks that. The Duke of Wellington himself uh, wrote to his friend Thomas Creevy after the uh, battle, famously saying, uh, and I quote, It has been a damn serious business. Blucher and I have lost 30,000 men. It has been a damned nice thing, the nearest run thing you ever saw in your life. By God, I don't think it would have been done if I had not been there. And by the way, the Duke of Wellington uses the word, quote, nice, unquote, in its old-fashioned sense of meaning uncertain or delicately balanced. In other words, uh, it's been translated uh, by others as a damn close run thing. But the point is that Wellington knew that he was really on the, uh, the knife's edge, uh, and it could have gone either way. Wellington wrote uh, on the 19th from Waterloo, as I've mentioned earlier, a dispatch to Earl Bathurst, who was the Secretary of War uh, at that time in the uh, British cabinet. For those inv who really enjoy military history, it's a wonderful read. It's not terribly long. It's really something to read Wellington's own account of the battle. Rather straightforward, uh, very factual and uh, unemotional for the most part, except where he's describing some of his colleagues who were killed in the battle. But he concludes the dispatch, the famous dispatch, by saying this, and I'm going to quote him again. I should not do justice to my own feelings or to Marshal Blucher and the Prussian army if I did not attribute the successful result of this arduous day to the cordial and timely assistance I received from them. The operation of General Bulow upon the enemy's flank was a most decisive one. And even if I had not found myself in a situation to make the attack which produced the final result, it would have forced the enemy to retire if his attacks should have failed, and would have prevented him from taking advantage of them if they should unfortunately have succeeded. So as you can see, he gives great credit to the Prussian army and Marshal Blucher for turning the battle decisively in favor of the Allies. The old field marshal himself only lived for another four years. He was 72 at the time of the battle and died at the age of 76. He remains to this day one of Germany's and Prussia's greatest heroes. If you go to Berlin, as I have, you will see a statue to Marshal Blücher on the Unter den Linden, one of the most famous streets in Berlin uh, and close to the Brandenburg Gate. Wellington would go on to even higher office, becoming prime minister for a time in the late 1820s. He eventually died in 1852 at the age of 83. Uh, he, like Blucher, is to this day regarded as one of Britain's greatest uh, military figures in that country's long history. As a matter of fact, in the year 2002, the BBC conducted a poll of the 100 greatest Britons of all time, and the Duke of Wellington ranked number 15. I think that uh, perhaps the reason the Battle of Waterloo 
has the iconic status that it does is because it transcends simply the defeat of Napoleon and marks the end of a century-long struggle between Britain and France for essentially mastery of the world that really started to take form in the War of the Spanish Succession about a hundred years earlier and culminated uh, with Waterloo. After 1815, for A century after that, Britain would be the predominant, preeminent world power, shaping the destiny not only of its own country and its own empire, but really the rest of the world as well. Uh, Much of the reason the world is, as we know it, is because of the British predominance after 1815, and this lasts really uh, till the First World War, when the United States begins to succeed Britain as the dominant power in the world. So Waterloo is, I think, the watershed between the 18th century and the 19th century, and one of those battles that the world would never be the same after. It was then, and deserves to be, one of the great battles that changed the course of human history.